This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But... If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Primero de Juan, capítulo 3, versículos 11 al 18. Porque este es el mensaje que ustedes han oído desde el principio que nos amemos unos a otros, no como Caín, que era del maligno y mató a su hermano. ¿Y por qué causa lo mató? Porque sus obras eran malas y las de su hermano justas. Hermanos, no se maravillen si el mundo los odia. Nosotros sabemos que hemos pasado de muerte a vida, porque amamos a los hermanos. El que no ama permanece en muerte. Todo el que aborrece a su hermano es un asesino. Y ustedes saben que ningún asesino tiene vida eterna permanente en él. En esto conocemos el amor, en que él puso su vida por nosotros. También nosotros debemos poner nuestras vidas por los hermanos. Pero el que tiene bienes de este mundo y ve a su hermano en necesidad y cierra su corazón contra él, ¿cómo puede morar el amor de Dios en él? Hijos, no amemos de palabra ninguna ni de lengua, sino de hecho y en verdad. La palabra de Dios. It's been in the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning, Doxa family. Um, my name is Tyson. If this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, normally, I am with the band. I'm the worship leader here at Doxa Church. Um, but I have the distinct privilege this morning to lead worship in the preaching of God's word. Um, Oftentimes when meeting someone new, I find myself asking the question, what do you do? Now obviously this question is directed with specific intent to learn someone's job or vocation. And if they don't have one, then the follow-up is normally regarding school or future endeavors for career path. In our society, someone's career or vocation is often treated as the most defining aspect of who they are. We can try to derive certain values, interpreted life decisions or commonalities from the answer to this question. Things like, are they contributing to society? Are they educated? Are they wealthy? Are they important? Are they like me? By trade, I am a title abstractor. In fact, there's a few in the crowd that are also title abstractors. Uh, I prefer real estate investigator, but nobody would ever call me that, and it brings unwanted confusion. So. <laughs> Uh, as a title abstractor, I find myself in any and every situation when it comes to real estate. One common one being foreclosures. 
When searching through a forklift, I know this is super exciting. This is, <laughs> this is my life, so bear with me for five minutes. When searching through a foreclosure, uh, we have different rules than we would for a normal fee simple deed. Normally, we would come up from what's known as the execution or witness date. Uh, but when it comes to foreclosures, we come up from what's known as the public outcry date. The date when the clerk of court auctions off the property to those present that day. And we choose this date for two reasons. One, because it always appears before the execution date. And two, because it was done in the presence of the public. Now similarly, here's where it makes sense. As John begins this change of thought at the start of today's passage, he is recalling his audience to the apostolic gospel that they first received. The one that came before those other perversions of the gospel and the one that was done in the presence of the public. And the one, or when we, uh, what we call it the apostolic gospel is the good news proclaimed by the apostles of Jesus and written about in the New Testament letters following the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The good news that Jesus, the Son of God and prophesied Messiah, has come into this world to defeat sin and the power over sin, death. And that in paying the debt owed to our sin and reigning victorious over death, this risen Messiah and King has now made us children of God and co-heirs with himself. This was the message that John was certainly recalling, but John is not just referencing the apostolic gospel. You see, John has somewhat of an obsession with beginnings. Let me give you a few examples. The gospel of John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Or at the beginning of this epistle, 1 John 1, 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Again, 1 John 2, 7, Beloved, I am writing to you a new commandment, not a new commandment, but an old one that you have heard from the beginning and this morning. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. John is doing something quite beautiful in his writings. He's making a literary connection to display the continuity and consistency of God's plan and character from Genesis to Revelation. My hope for this morning is not to give you my thoughts on 1 John 3, 11 through 18, but rather to show that this beautiful message that we should love one another is not simply a right response to the apostolic gospel, but that this was the very message from the beginning. Uh, if you're a note taker, to do this, I'm going to break it up into three phrases or phases throughout the scriptures that should be on the screen behind me. First being, a people created to love. Second, a people commanded to love. And third, a people completely loved. How Baptist of me, right? Three C words. Before we continue, uh, I want to ask the Lord uh, to speak to us all in this time and space. So if you would, just pray with me. Pray for me. Pray for this time. Thank you, Father, for this time. Be with us now. Thank you, Spirit, for this space. Abide in it, as you did over the formless void in the beginning. Descend upon it. Descend upon us, as you did for Jesus at the River Jordan. Move in mighty power, as you did in that empty tomb, and as you did again at Pentecost. Lead me now to speak the words I need to say. Lead me not to speak the words I should not say. 
Help me to trust that you are working among us anyways and to lean on your all-sufficient grace. For your deserved glory and our everlasting joy, I pray. Amen. So to start off, a people created to love. This morning, just heads up, we're going to be doing a lot of turning and skimming uh, throughout the scriptures, but ultimately we'll be, we will be anchored in 1 John. So if you're using a physical Bible, um, just keep a place in 1 John so that you can keep returning to it. Uh, but for this first stop this morning, we're going to be going back to the beginning. And not the beginning of this book, but the beginning of the entire Bible. So if you would like to, turn with me to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And as it went on, the Lord continued to make the waters and the sky, the dry land and its vegetation, the sun and the moon and the stars of the night sky, the creatures of the sea, the creatures of the land, and the creatures of the air, and finally he creates humanity and commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Man and woman, made in the image of the triune God, created to do what? Love. Now, you could argue that it doesn't say that. But what would you claim it means to be made in the image of a God who, as John says, is love? The God who is described in Exodus 34, 6 as being a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The one and only triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, where the Father perfectly loves the Son and the Spirit, the Son perfectly loves the Spirit and the Father, and the Spirit perfectly loves the Father and the Son. To be made in the image of this God is to be created to be and do one thing, love. But we know how this story goes. Though we were created to love God and love others, we were tempted to be God. And we took the bait. Simply having all that we could ever want and need wasn't enough. This ancient conundrum doesn't escape us today, though, does it? Look around. We have all that we could ever want. Globally speaking, we collectively live in the top 1% of the wealthiest in the world, and yet our houses never quite feel spacious enough, our cars never smooth enough, our commutes never short enough, our food never quick enough, and our vacations never long enough. We clumsily and yet willfully fall right in line with our ancient ancestors, Adam and Eve, don't we? God has given us himself. He's literally given us himself, and yet we want more. More things, more comfort, more success, or worse, we want to be him. We want to take control. This sinful desire of self-gratification and personal grandeur led our ancient ancestors out of Eden, out of Eden where they had once effortlessly walked and talked with God and east to a world of toil, strife, and death. A world where eventually in Genesis 4, brother would slay brother. Some light stuff, right? 
Turn back with me uh, to 1 John 3.11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John, in this poetic sermon of his, likes to speak in stark contrast. Light and dark, children of God and children of wrath or children of Satan, and in this instance, love and hate. In this morning's passage, John gives the antithesis or opposite example of what it means to hear and obey the message to love one another. He draws our attention back to this passage in Genesis, to a world of toil, strife, and death where a brother kills his own brother. In this story in Genesis 4, we have an older brother, Cain, if you're not familiar with it, who gave an offering to God of fruit that had fallen to the ground. His brother Abel, on the other hand, gave the firstborn of his, flock, of his flock in fattened portions, and God took favor on Abel's offering. Why? Is it because God loves good barbecue and a nice fatty steak? No. Though I might have been partial to such reasons, God has, was more concerned with the heart behind such a sacrifice. Cain gave that which was no loss to him. Fruit that had literally fallen to the ground. The fruit that everybody knows you don't eat. Whereas Abel made a noticeable sacrifice and gave his best portions to God. But Cain, instead of recognizing his own greed and lackluster worship and repenting, became so consumed with that desire of self-gratification and personal grandeur that he killed his own brother. And so John points to this well-known Jewish story and says, Don't be like Cain. Love one another. Love one another as I have first loved you. Now those of us who are familiar with the biblical story know that this was sadly not the climax of such hate, but only the precedent. The story of Genesis and really the story of the entire Bible is one of the continued failings of man met with the continued faithful love of God. Even in this story of Cain, the Lord out of abundant kindness and compassion placed a mark on Cain to protect him from anyone that might seek vengeance upon him. For God had created a people for love, and even their overt wickedness wouldn't change this. But after Cain came Lamech, a man so wicked that he prided himself on being 11 times worse than his great-great-great-grandfather Cain. But God, in his steadfast love and patience once again, had not given up on his creation. So to Adam he bore another son, a man named Seth, a man whose lineage would eventually lead to another man deemed blameless in his generation, a man who once again walked with God. And this man was Noah. So as men multiplied on the earth, and so did their wickedness, and out of faithful love to his creation and his plan to redeem it, God created a flood, a fresh start, a man blameless to walk, who walked with God and a new canvas for this to happen. So God made a covenant with Noah 
and commanded him and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does it sound familiar? But after the flood had subsided and Noah and his family were encamped on land again, Noah became consumed with his wine. And on a shameful night did something unspeakable with his son, worthy of a curse. And so the pattern would continue. A world made to be subdued and a people created to love would be overcome with desire of self-gratification and personal grandeur. Towers were built and nations were scattered. Descendants were promised and covenants were broken. Brothers were tricked and brothers were sold, but God was always faithful. We're almost there. And after about 400 years of God's people dwelling and multiplying in the land of Egypt, things took a fateful turn. The Israelites became enslaved and their boys slaughtered by a new and threatened Pharaoh. But God rescued one, one that would eventually return and set his people free. Moses became the vessel through which God would rescue his people, make a new covenant, and restore his presence once again, paving the way for someone who would later come to do this for all people and for good. But God's people, like us, were stiff-necked and unyielding in their ungrateful rage to the God who had led them out of captivity. Though they grumbled for food, he fed them bread that fell from heaven. Though they grumbled for drink, he broke open a rock and poured out a spring of water. Though they lacked faith, he displayed perfect faith and love by making a covenant with them once again to restore them again as his people set apart from the nations. They needed to be reminded, though, and directed towards the love that they were created to be and do. And so, this leads us to the second phase. They became a people commanded to love. It's wild how dry your mouth gets up here. Though this divine imprint of faithful love was no less true of the purpose of our creation, we submitted rather to a law that pointed us to the very same end, to love. With the receiving of the law came also the restored presence of God. Once again, God would dwell with man, but man was not fit to dwell with God. And so became the identity of God's people as those under and subject to this law, a law meant to lead back to God, that for some would eventually become the very God they worshipped. God's people weren't content with being just under a law. They would rather have men and women ruling over them as judges and kings, priests and prophets, rulers, to be their guides and consciences, to facilitate closeness to God rather than God himself. And don't we do this? Instead of speaking with God, we listen to a book. We turn on a podcast or consume someone's eloquent sermon. Things that you can hear God through. Don't get me wrong. But we would rather listen to and be around those who have been with God and heard his voice than to actually speak with and hear from God ourselves. Instead of feeding the poor and caring for the orphan, we would rather delegate our responsibility and sometimes even our sin onto political leaders to do it for us. We don't have to feed the houseless if we can lobby for a policy to eliminate houselessness or a policy to eliminate the houseless by busing them to other towns. We don't have to care for the orphan 
As long as we can make sure babies aren't aborted, we've done our job, right? We, just like the Israelites, would rather someone else be with God and tell us about it than to be with him ourselves. And we, just like the Israelites, would rather appoint rulers over us to represent God's love or what we define as such rather than to embody it ourselves in the lives we live. Being created in the image of love and commanded to love in return would only prove further our need to recognize that which was always true from the beginning. A greater truth that needed to be realized and embodied before we could ever begin to understand and obey John's words in this morning's passage. This brings us to the third phase. We needed to become a people completely loved. Or as John addresses his audience before and after this gospel recall, beloved, or more accurately broken down, be loved. The apostolic gospel that John refers back to, the message that I have argued this morning is traced throughout all of Scripture can be simplified into this sequence. It should be on the screen behind me. I created you for love. I commanded you to love. You did not choose love. You are loved. To be loved is to acknowledge a reality that predates your awareness, understanding, or acceptance of such love. In other words, the reality that of you being loved came with no condition of you knowing it, comprehending it, or receiving such a love. But the ability to show love at least to show the agape love that John is recalling, does have a condition. To show love requires that one does know, understand, and accept the reality that they are loved. Loved by God himself. Grace and I have a nighttime routine that we do with Emil, and it, uh, normally consists of a bath time, a song, a book, and a time of prayer. One of Grace's favorites to sing is, Jesus loves me, this I know. It became so because often I just didn't want to grab my guitar and it was easy enough to remember and sing. But it's such a simple and yet profoundly beautiful song, and uh, I want you guys to do something with me. Maybe strange, but if you would, close your eyes. I'm going to sing it, and then uh, we're going to have nap time. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but let's close our eyes. Um, I want to sing it, and if you know the song, uh, sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so.
Three times that phrase is repeated. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. This radical love that the Father lavishes upon us culminates in His incarnation. The incarnation of God, the person of Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection is the great bellowing announcement from God to say, I love you. I love you this much. I love you this much. The embodiment of love didn't end in words, for the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Love took on flesh that would be broken and blood that would be spilt. Love lived a life that would be taken and died a death fully given. Love chose you so you could freely choose to love. So I say it again, to show agape love requires that one does know, understand, and accept the reality that they are loved. Not because you have earned it. Not because you are special, strong, beautiful, smart, but because you are his. And as John hammers home over and over again in this letter, those who are his prove so by loving one another. The question then is, what is the content of this love? What does the agape love of God look like? 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5.8, that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 13 you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 15 keeps going. It's as if this is the message of the Scriptures. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Those who are his, those who know love, prove so by loving one another. After this passage in John's first epistle, he says this, Beloved, be loved. Let us love one another for Love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is 
love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. Those who are his, those who know love, prove so by loving one another. But like the religious of Jesus' day, we want to know the extent of this love. We want to go just far enough to pass. Does it apply to everyone? Does it apply to every situation? This parsing out of love's limitations is nothing more than a rebrand of Satan's famous words in the garden. Did God really say? Did God really say that I should love my neighbor and pray for those who persecute me? Who really is my neighbor? What about that guy always wearing a Trump hat? What about that girl at the Black Lives Matter rally? What about that person down the street always flying a rainbow flag? What about that woman who just had an abortion? What about that child who now needs a home? What about that family who has sought refuge in this country and just can't seem to find it? Or the people who live in that neighborhood? Or the people who voted for that person? Or worship this way? Or wear those clothes? Even them? Yeah. The whole world. That's how big his love is. For God so loved who? The world. But the questions aren't just in who, but in how. John finishes this morning's section with an appeal to this ancient evasion of faithful love. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, how do we love, you ask? Through the embodied actions of serving those around you. Frederick Douglass, on July 5, 1852, 13 years before slavery was officially ended throughout the United States, was asked to give an address and speech about the 4th of July. What a person to ask to give a 4th of July speech. I don't know if uh, the people who invited him to speak got what they wanted, but Frederick Douglass did not hold back any punches, and uh, the punches hurt just as much today. So I'm going to read an excerpt from this over-hour-long speech. It'll be on the screen behind me. The fact that the church of our country, with fractional exceptions, does not esteem the fugitive slave law, pause, or insert anything abhorrent and evil in our day and in this current cultural moment, play, as a declaration of war against religious liberty, implies that the church regards religion simply as a form of worship, an empty ceremony, and not a vital principle requiring active benevolence, justice, love, and goodwill towards man. It esteems sacrifice above mercy, psalm singing above right doing, solemn meetings above practical righteousness, a worship that can be conducted by persons who refuse to give shelter to the houseless, to give bread to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and who enjoin obedience to a law forbidding these acts of mercy is a curse, not a blessing to mankind. The Bible addresses all such persons as scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, who pay tithe of mint, anise, cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, 
mercy, and faith. Do you feel implicated in this? Of course, these critiques weren't just the words of Frederick Douglass. Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire steadfast love, or mercy, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus commenting on this verse in Matthew 9.13 said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Or in Matthew 23.23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And Jesus, while speaking on the final judgment in Matthew 25, said this, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then they responded, asking him when they had done these things. And he continues in verse 40. And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Or James, the brother of Jesus. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? I ask again, do you feel implicated in this? When it comes to the failings of loving all people everywhere, since this is what Christ meant when he reaffirmed the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, we are all implicated. But for every area that we are implicated through our failing, we are then exonerated by his grace and commissioned to love once again from the reality that we are completely loved. I'll say that again. For every area that we are implicated through our failing, we are then exonerated by his grace and commissioned to love once again from the reality that we are are completely loved. Fellow sinner, this appeal to love as Christ loves is not meant to be another millstone tied to your neck, but a stepping stone back to the throne of grace where you first encountered love himself. Brennan Manning, in his book, Abba's Child, says this, In love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Physician, draw back. In other words, your ability to serve and love others around you comes with a prerequisite of seeing oneself as wounded. To participate in the love of our wounded healer, we have to first come to him in need of being healed. It's then and only then that we can say, as John says, love because he first loved us. Only in God's kingdom are the wounds are wounds able to be the healing balm for the broken and destitute? 
By his wounds we have been healed. Last week, uh, I left church hungry, tired, and running behind on time. And after spending a month in this passage and a week preparing a message on loving one another from the reality of being loved, all it took was one skipped breakfast, an hour less of sleep, and a few slow cars to ignite in me an anger that felt a lot like Cain. It didn't help that I drove 20 minutes out of the way to pick up lunch for Grace and myself, only to discover I had driven to the long the wrong tropical smoothie. So I was, uh, I was filled with insecurity of being a failure, to be honest, or a disappointment that translated into anger and rapidly deteriorating patience. I haven't felt more in need of Jesus to be my rock and source of love in a long time. And that sounds wild, that it was that small thing that triggered it. But I am wounded. My heart is weak. As I sat there in my car beating myself up over this absolutely ridiculous display of fickleness, I felt Jesus reminding me that I was his. And that he didn't stand as my accuser, but as my advocate and friend. The story of the woman caught in adultery for me has become one of the integral ways that I see myself relating and interacting with Jesus. Caught in sin and accused to condemnation, By my own conscience or circumstance, I find myself thrown at the feet of Jesus as he draws some mystery in the dirt. And as our eyes meet, I see only a friend. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. It felt as if he picked me up out of the dust and dirt, brushed me off, and like the woman caught in adultery, sent me off to sin no more. Maybe this morning... The implications of not loving as Christ does isn't that you neglect the houseless or the orphan. Maybe you don't struggle with wanting more stuff, more comfort, or more success. Maybe you have no struggles with loving people no matter what they look like or believe. Or maybe you're like me and you struggle to love those closest to you. Your spouse, kids, parents, siblings, friends, co-workers. Those who should be easiest to love, you seem to fail at doing. Maybe this call to love for you is a lot more domestic. Maybe there are people here in this very body that Christ is calling you to love more intentionally and specifically this morning. Or maybe he's calling you to let yourself be loved by him, by yourself. And by those around you. Who have you neglected to love? How have you reserved parts of yourself from those around you? How can you, how can you better embody the love of Christ today? This morning I opened up with a question that we so often ask each other the question that we might think derives one's worth or value in this world, but in God's kingdom, the greatest question is not what do you do, but who do you know? Do you know love? Does he know you? 
whether you call yourself a child of God or have never known this God of love that I speak of, I ask you this. Have you experienced the grace of God? Do you think you need it as much as everyone else? As much as anyone else? If the answer to either of these questions is not 100% unequivocally yes, then I invite you this morning to do so. I invite you to humbly approach the throne of grace, a throne made of dirt where the Son of Man is knelt drawing. A throne where you are implicated, charged, and guilty. And yet the King of Kings, worthy alone to cast the first stone of condemnation, places his hand on your shoulder and says, Sister, brother, rise, go, sin no more. Whether for the first time or the millionth, I invite you to approach this throne. Here you will realize that you are the beloved. And from here you will be commissioned to love those around you, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I'm going to pray. As I pray, the band is going to come up and Randy's going to lead us into a time of communion. So if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God of love, mercy, patience, you abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, God, that it, every ounce of love that abides in our heart comes from you. Everything that you've called us to do, Father, you have then supplied us the ability to do so by your Spirit. We thank you for that. Lord, I ask that as we approach this table, as we continue to worship in song, that by your Spirit you would be drawing us to a deeper, truer way of love. The kind of love that doesn't end in word or talk, but leads to deed and truth. God, I pray that you would do that in us this morning. Thank you, Father, for your love. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.